Leviticus is not only relevant as it theologically establishes for us this precedent for God's grace, but the book is very practical, a word most don't use in regards to Leviticus, but it is. It's very uh, theologically relevant, but it's very practical, especially in the way that it takes the theology of grace and applies it to our lives. It establishes grace, but then carries forth by articulating how God's grace changes everything. God's grace, the presence of God in our midst, in our lives, should yield, should have an effect on the way we live, the way we interact with others. It should affect everything. This morning, we're going to do what we always do here at Calvary 316, And let's work our way through Leviticus chapter 19, verse by verse. What will be different, though, is I'm going to attempt to illustrate something about the text that's sitting, interestingly enough, just below the surface that is absolutely radical. In a way, I'm going to kind of try to take you on the journey that I had this past week studying Leviticus 19. About 12 hours I spent in this text listening to commentaries. And about the eighth hour, an idea hit me. Changed the way I viewed everything about the chapter. So I'm going to try to take you on the same journey that I went on. See if you can pick it up. And at the end, if you didn't, no problem. There'll be a grand reveal. Verse 1, chapter 19. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Following a lengthy set of dietary restrictions, in Leviticus 11, verse 44, we have recorded God's first use of this refrain, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now as chapter 19 begins, we again find God exhorting his people To be holy. And don't overlook the significance of those two words. Be holy. One of the core traps that people fall into when approaching a chapter like this is in the midst of these directives, these commands, we begin to see them as things that we're to do as opposed to being a description of what God intends us to be. As we go through chapter 9, don't see these as things for me to do, but a description of what I am supposed to be. God isn't commanding His people to do something. Instead, He's describing what their lives should look like in light of their relationship with God established on His grace. Now, the first characteristic of a child of God living in light of grace is that you'll, quote, revere your father and your mother. The idea behind this word revere spoke of an attitude of the person who'd experienced God's grace, the attitude they were to have towards mom and dad. The Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6, to honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it might be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Up front, I understand that for many of you, the relationship that you have with your parents is complicated. (laughs) to say the least. 
For others of you, I know that it's probably downright toxic. While this verse articulates an attitude, it doesn't mean you have to obey your parents. It's not what the word says, especially if you're an adult man. And yet, because they at a minimum, you know, were instrumental in you living, (laughs) they gave you life, a measure of reverence towards your parents, it's appropriate. In this verse, God also says a person experiencing his grace will keep his Sabbaths. Beginning in creation, God established the precedent of the Sabbath when following six days of work, God rested on the seventh day. God's work was finished. It was complete. He and the man he had made into his image were free to enjoy life as it was always meant to be enjoyed. And yet following man's sin in the garden, on this holy day, the seventh, God's Sabbath rest ended as he immediately went back to work in order to bring about his plan of redemption. Well, there is no doubt the Creator knew the emotional and physical importance of human beings resting every seventh day. I mean, it is part of his design. The idea, though, behind man taking a day to cease from his work and rest, it possessed an even deeper religious purpose. Jesus would say in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath, this whole thing, was made for man. And not man for the Sabbath. Keeping this day of rest was man's way of acknowledging an important reality. It was the fact that there was nothing he could do to restore God's Sabbath. God's original rest. The life that they were to have together. You see, the life that God meant for man to enjoy with him on that seventh day, well, it could only be restored through God's work, apart from human involvement. So wait a second, Pastor Zach. Are you saying that I have to keep the Sabbath? Well, sadly, such a question completely misses the point. You see, grace doesn't mandate you keep a Sabbath day. Instead, God's grace motivates you to take a day of rest, a day of reflection, The should I question, well, it should transition, if you really get it, into a why wouldn't I? You know, in our fast-paced world, there is a practical benefit to setting aside one day in seven to just chill out, to rest, to relax. Physically, it's important to recharge emotionally. And yet, never forget that the greatest benefit of a Sabbath is that it helps an individual, a person, adjust their eyes from the temporal to the eternal. It's why the Jews began the Sabbath, the Sabbath, meeting, gathering at the synagogue, the local place of worship. One day a week, all work ceased, routines stopped, the community gathered and worshiped. And then they spent the rest of their day watching football with their family. While the traditional Sabbath, understand it, ended when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And it ended because God's rest was now restored. 
the early church leaders still recognized the importance of the principle. Setting a day aside to recenter spiritually, recharge physically, reset emotionally, one day to worship corporately, and take time to reflect on the incredible goodness and grace of God. I, I can't emphasize enough the spiritual benefits that will be yielded in your life if you simply prioritize coming to church with your family one morning a week and then taking the rest of the day to relax. Verse 4, do not turn to idols nor make for yourself molded gods. Molded gods. I am the Lord your God. It's worth noting that God is referring here to two different types of idols. Those that we adopt that already exist. And then those that we actually make for ourselves. We mold and shape for ourselves. If you don't believe that the caution of idolatry is still relevant today, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, and 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, just two of many examples, New Testament believers, you and I are commanded very specifically to keep ourselves from idols, to flee idolatry. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, pastor and author Timothy Keller defines idolatry this way. Idolatry is anything so essential, so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. That's how you know it's an idol. He adds, idolatry then is not just a failure to obey God. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. When you think of idolatry as a little Buddha statue at your famous Chinese restaurant, you're like, I got no problems with that. But when you think of it in this context, oh, idolatry is rampant. In layman's terms, an idol is anything or anyone you give a preeminent position in your life to over Jesus. What's intriguing about this command to avoid idolatry is that it's being given by God to who? The children of Israel in the middle of the wilderness with the physical presence of God right there in their midst. I mean, that's the context. Like, consider that. Like, how is it that God-fearing, believing people could possibly be drawn to idol worship. It's not an accident that this particular mandate follows God's exhortation to do what? To keep the Sabbath. You see, one intends to safeguard from the other. And here's the truth. God exists, gods exist, to save people from hell. If you don't believe in hell, you don't need a God. If your perspective remains on the eternal, and so you recognize the eternal reality that there's a heaven and there's a hell, that my physical death is not the end of me, but the beginning of something else, and that that reality ends up being predicated upon decisions I make here, well, Jesus becomes a very relevant God. As a matter of fact, he becomes the most logical God because he's the only one that went there, came back, and told us about it. And yet, if your life gets wrapped up in worldly things, counterfeit gods or idols are quick to emerge. As an example, if poor finances, debt, the instability that results from these things 
is the most pressing issue in your life. As a matter of fact, it's the thing that makes you miserable. Let's just define it as your hell. How quickly a job or a career becomes an idol. You long for that thing because you're hoping it saves you from what makes you miserable. A savior for hell. See how that works? If let's say uh, health or body issues are like the dominant thing, your hell, then it's not a surprise that you become totally consumed with a diet or a gym. Not that any of those things are bad, but if they take a preeminent position because you're hoping they save you from something, it's idol worship. The key to idolatry is always keep your perspective where? On the eternal. That's why a Sabbath is important. It helps me take a break from the chaos and to come and to recognize something beyond me, something that's important. My perspective on the eternal versus the temporal. Verse 5. If you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and on the next, and on the next day. And if any remains until the third day, it should be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, well, that's an abomination. That's gross. Spoiled meat. No refrigeration. Ice boxes. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, anyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he's profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. I'm not going to uh, get into this much. You can refer back to Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 21, that deals with this. This, this is kind of a condensed version of that, so you can refer back to that study. Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, the Lord God says, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. So don't reap all of it. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape in your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord. Fundamentally, any person who's experienced God's grace should naturally possess a heart of love and compassion towards those less fortunate. Apart from God's grace, I would have nothing. That should change how we view others who have nothing. Within Israel, there was this welfare system being articulated right here. A welfare system designed so that the poor and the stranger were able to glean in a field or a vineyard after a harvest. Following the shears, it was legal and permissible for a person to walk behind and collect necessary provisions for what, from whatever was left over. We, we, saw, we see a great example of this in, in the story of Ruth. Unlike our society, though, it should be pointed out that the poor, if you wanted to eat, you had to go glean. There was a system established to take care of your needs, but you had to go and have a little skin in the game. You had to go work for it. It wasn't a free handout. Now, connected with this provision, God goes on the record explaining what the attitude should be of the haves towards the have-nots. Like if you fully understood, if you fully recognized that the entire increase of that year's harvest existed because of the goodness of God, well, it would only be natural that you'd cut corners, leaving sections of your field for the poor, as well as only taking one pass through the vineyard, leaving an ample supply of grapes left over. The idea is that you weren't stingy. 
You recognize that this is how people ate and how other people, you cut corners. Left the corners for, for the poor. And you only went through it once and what was left over, well, that was fine. I hope you understand that there is a direct correlation between one's faith in God's provisions and understanding of His grace and that person's charity. Faith, greater faith, always leads to greater generosity. In fact, Jesus would point to that, wouldn't He? He would say, where a man's treasure lies, there his heart lies also. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's not how much of your money you give. You're thinking about it backwards. It's really how much of God's money you'll keep for yourself. If you understand it's all His anyway. You know, grace. This is another great example of this. Grace doesn't demand you give anything. There's no precondition to that. But grace will always motivate you to be generous. It doesn't demand, but it does motivate. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul will write to believers. He says, so let each one of you give. As he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, but always remember that God loves, he delights in a cheerful giver. Literally, that word cheerful, I love it. It's it's a hilarious giver. You're laughing while you're doing it. God, you've been so good to me. I can't outgive you. Verse 11. You shall not steal. It's a good one. And take something by force. Nor deal falsely with others. This is the, to feign obedience. To fake it. To deceive someone. Nor should you lie to another. Or to communicate a deliberate falsehood. And you shall not swear by my name falsely. Or base an oath on God's name. And then fail to follow through on that oath. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Matthew chapter 5. Verses 33 through 37, Jesus said, You have heard it said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. And then Jesus says, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. In the Hebrew, this word profane, you shall not profane the name of of your God. It doesn't mean to take the Lord's name in vain, as we kind of have, you know, presented it. It's more broad than that. The word means, this word profane, it means to take what is common and bring it down. That's what the word means. To make something common when it isn't. Like the idea being articulated in light of God's grace is that our desire should be, first and foremost, to do what? To live our lives in such a way that it isn't common or profane. Our lives shouldn't look like everyone else's lives. We should live in a way that what? The name of God is not made common, but magnified. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said of his disciples, he said, you're the light of the world. And then he adds, so let your light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter, this kosher Jew, is dealing with the ramifications of the gospel being extended out into the Gentile world, God says something interesting. He says, Peter, what I've cleansed, never call common, because it isn't. Verse 13, you shall not cheat your neighbor, intentionally defraud him, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Basically, if anyone or or someone uh, is working for you with an expected wage, so you've hired them with an agreement, it's just inconsistent with the grace that you've received from God if you were to withhold that person's pay. Someone's working for you, pay them. That's what God's saying. It's a good thing. Don't wait till tomorrow, pay them today. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf. I don't know how they would hear you. (laughs) The idea, the idea of this, curse the deaf, it's to view them, literally, as if they're insignificant or of less value. That's what the idea is. Nor shall you put a stumbling block before the blind. Man, God's got to deal with our base behavior. Don't trip the blind guy, you know? What that's articulating is don't act in such a way that you would cause someone in such a condition unnecessary harm. But fear God. I am the Lord. Again, knowing that apart from God's goodness, we could just as easily find ourselves in a terrible condition our heart towards the handicapped should be of love and compassion. You know, if Jesus demonstrated anything during his earthly ministry, you can make the case that that his heart towards the physically afflicted was totally evident. Jesus goes from town to town to town. Yes, preaching, doing amazing things, but man, he does. Like he, he was compassionate. We're told over and over that Jesus was moved with compassion. He'd stay up all night healing people of their infirmities, of their physical deformities. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, Jesus will say that the blind, because of him, can see. The lame can walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. Or or you should judge fairly. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You know, when it comes to decision making, never forget God's grace places all men onto equal footing. As such, it's unjust to show partiality to the poor guy simply because he's poor, or to honor the mighty, because they might be influential. Treat everybody the same. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus would say, when you give a dinner, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But instead invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid, Jesus says, at the resurrection of the just. Verse 16. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. A talebearer is 
is one who bears tales. That's what the word means. And more kind of a, a, a common vernacular, we, just, we would refer to this as gossip. Don't gossip. Don't talk about other people. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor, or, or this would be to bear false witness if called to testify in, in some type of a case. I am the Lord. In my studies of this chapter, Pastor John Corson, he makes an astute observation about the overall effects of gossip, bearing tales. He says in gossip, there's always three victims. Always. One, the person you're gossiping about is a victim because you're tainting their reputation without giving them the opportunity to defend themselves. Two, you're harming yourself because you're becoming known as a gossip. And three, gossip hurts the person you're talking to because you're poisoning their perspective. It's been said, great minds talk about ideas. Good minds converse about events. But small minds talk about people. Here's a good rule of thumb. If a person gossips to you, always know they'll likely gossip about you. Jesus actually cautions in Matthew chapter 12. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There's no point about talking about others or bearing tales. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Simply put, God's love, the experience of God's love, you know, something you don't deserve at all, unmerited favor, that should make it impossible for you to hate anyone, to hate another. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, we're told that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hatred towards someone should tell you a lot about what's going on in your own soul. That being said, when you're harmed, because we live in a messy place, a messy world, and you're going to get hurt. God says, how you deal with it is don't harbor it. Go to that person and deal with it. Let it go. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Taking vengeance upon another is, is really a dangerous proposition. And here's why. At, at, at every point, at some point, every victim has also been a perpetrator. <laughs> vengeance would make things really messy. Because you'd be acting out and being, you'd be getting it back. Like additionally, bearing a grudge only infects the victim. 
doesn't deal with a problem. It infects the victim with a cancer that will destroy that person. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Taking teeth from people, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, not to resist an, an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus says some radical things. According to God, the only possible mechanism for healing if you've been wronged is to love. And it's not cliche, but love, there's a healing power. We're told, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If there's any doubt that you love yourself, I hate myself. No, no, no. If you say, I hate myself, that just is first evidence you really love yourself. You love yourself enough to hate yourself. Uh, easy, easy. Uh, just take a picture of a group that you're involved in. Uh, who's the first person you look for? <laughs> it's you, right? I mean, first, first person you look for in a, in a group picture is you. And as a matter of fact, everybody can look great, but you're going to judge that picture, whether it's good or bad, on one thing. My hair looks terrible garbage. I mean, you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This word love, you notice it's in the active tense, which implies motion. Instead of lashing out with vengeance or bearing a grudge, our response should be to demonstrate kindness, to show love, irregardless of how we've been treated. Don't we find that modeled by Jesus? And we're to be Christ-like. And in fact, in Matthew 5, verses 44, 43 through 44, Jesus carries this verse one step further by defining how we're to love. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Kind of bizarre, isn't it? Now, to understand what God's saying, keep the verse in context. As a matter of fact, there's a context provided by the verse itself. Look again. How does it begin? You shall keep my statutes. So it, it would seem that the reference of livestock breeding with another kind or sowing your field with mixed seed or mixing linen and wool in a garment is God's way here of illustrating a much larger principle that's central to the idea of keeping his statutes. You with me? You following? Like in order to live a life that upholds his statutes, his standards, what is the key? Well, the key is we must avoid the mixing of what robs from purity. That's what God is illustrating here. Like, understand, God's grace is not the starting point by which we progress into, into greater realities. It's not the starting point. Grace is the only point. There's nothing else. If your motivation for keeping his statutes, 
is anything but God's grace and God's grace alone, you're going to have a perversion. It's It's a twisting, a warping. Grace and do these things, or grace but don't do these things. Rob the purity and power of grace alone. Jesus would caution to the dangers of compromise, which is what this is getting at. In Matthew 5, he says, you're salt. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it season? It is good for nothing. It should be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. The Apostle Paul then builds on that idea in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, don't be unequally yoked, mixed with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what communion has light with darkness? This line, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you, it's a profound statement. Especially when you, when you consider that linen was the garment of what? It was the garments of righteousness. It was the garments of the priesthood. Wool was the, the garments of the workmen. It was tougher, had some tenacity to it. One, the righteousness of God. The other, the work of man. Are you picking it up? Like what God is illustrating is He's saying, don't mix my righteous garments with your workman garments. Don't try to add to to my righteousness what I want to give you, what I want to make you, what I want to clothe you in. Don't mix that with your stuff, your works, your efforts and energies. Verse 22. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom, for this there shall be a scourging, but they shall not be put to death, which we'll get to in the next chapter was the standard penalty for adultery, because she was not free. And he, this being the guilty party, shall bring a trespass offering to the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. A ram is a trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. Now this situation, what's being described, it begins with a man lying carnally with a woman. Now the English, in the English here, it appears that we're getting a description of adultery or or sexual activity motivated by carnal desires like we saw in the previous chapter. And yet this Hebrew word lies. It's actually the same word that God uses in his prohibition of homosexuality. With that in mind, the idea is that this man and this situation, he generally falls in love with the woman emotionally and spiritually, like there's a connection, sparks are flying, and he ends up sleeping with her, we can presume culturally hoping that they would be married. Sadly, there's two problems. First, she's a concubine who has not been redeemed nor given her freedom. Now to be fair, this word concubine is a terrible translation. Be better translated as handmaid or maidservant. She's an employee of the man. But this fact that she hasn't been redeemed nor given her freedom, it implies that her servitude in the house as a handmaiden, well, it was required. She had to to, to be doing this likely to pay off a debt. Which means, in this situation, that her actions, while reciprocal, 
it gets complicated because the man had an authority over her. Like it just gets murky. The second problem is that we're told this woman is betrothed to another dude. And in Hebrew culture, betrothal meant legal marriage. They were legally married, but they hadn't consummated the relationship. So they hadn't had the honeymoon, the official ceremony. Adultery was a death penalty. But because this woman is still a virgin, God says apply some grace here. Like we're told on account that she's under the authority of this man, for this there should be a scourging. The word scourging here is completely misleading. It's the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible you find this Hebrew word. It's a a poor translation. It's not scourging. Literally, it spoke of compensation or, or punishment. More than likely, because the man took advantage of his position, the punishment resulted in the woman's debt being satisfied. She was free to now do what she wanted, to do as she wished. Additionally, the man would have to come and offer a ram as a trespass offering. What does this tell us? <laughs> Where's the application? Here it is. While there are moral matters that are clearly black and white, I mean, adultery with your neighbor's wife was one of them. When you wade into the more complicated gray issues, which they exist, you know, falling in love with a woman that's betrothed, but they haven't consummating it, just kind of messy. It's always wise. I love what Pastor Chuck always said. It's always wise. If you're going to make a mistake, if you're going to err, err on the side of grace. You can never go wrong. Legally or not, Jesus would add in Matthew 5, verse 27. He says, you've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 23, when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised or or unharvested. Three years it shall be unharvested to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year you can eat it, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. Now practically, we understand that there is a tangible benefit of a few years of pruning before harvesting fruit from a tree. I called a friend of mine who happens to be an arborist, ran these verses by him, and he was like, oh, absolutely, there's profound wisdom in what's being articulated. Wait to the fifth year. You get much better fruit. Now, pertaining to grace, there's no question that God here is illustrating for us a much larger principle about trees and fruit and how this works, an idea that Jesus will build off of when he talks about knowing a tree by how? It's fruit, Matthew chapter 7. What we know is that spiritually mature and useful fruit, it takes time to develop in a person's life. Like there's a process. You you come to church and and you you sit under the teaching of God's word and, and man, you're planting by rivers of living water and you're sinking your roots down and you're looking at your life and it's like, my life is still a mess. Like when's this good godly stuff supposed to be happening? Pump the brakes. Mature fruit takes time. It takes time to mature. Like not only does this just illustrate for us the importance of just being patient with people, but it tells us that we shouldn't judge a person prematurely. It takes time. Verse 26, you shall not eat anything with blood. 
We have a whole chapter that was on that, so we'll move on. Nor shall you practice divination, that's fortune-telling, or soothsaying, that's astrology, observing the times, reading the stars. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. Don't do that. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you, I am the Lord. Oh man, y'all are all in big trouble. (laughs) Understand the context for what's being communicated here. Is that the cuttings and the tattooings, the shaving of the beards and whatnot, these were all related to the pagan customs of mourning for the dead, as well as idol worship. That, that's the context. So if your tattoos exist because you're worshiping idols, you might not want to do that. But at the same time, you can have like heavenly tattoos. Tattoos that are glorifying. A great example of this, by the way, is remember the story of Elijah, Elijah and the prophets of Baal? They have the cook-off to see whose God is real. And in their worship of God, trying to get Baal to send down fire from heaven, they're running around worshiping. And what are they doing? They're cutting themselves. And they have little tattoo guns. And They didn't have that. But that's the idea of trying to get the God's favor by having these markings. It's paganism. If your tattoos are about paganism, shame on you. If they're not, cool. I have nothing, I have no problems with tattoos as long as they're not on me. I don't like needles. Some of you have beautiful tattoos, by the way. Very cool stuff. Hallison's new one. Rad. Verse 29. This is important. Do not prostitute your daughter. I know some of you were thinking about, is, is this, is that okay? No, no, God's pretty, don't. Don't prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot or literally a whore. I just wanted to say whore. (laughs) Lest the land fall into harlotry or whoredom (laughs) and the land become full of wickedness. This word prostitute, it's again not a great translation. It means to make common. So don't let your daughters become common. And the word that's translated to cause her to be a harlot refers just to fornication. Like the idea here is that God is calling upon fathers to hold their daughters to a holy standard of of modesty. And the importance of that is so that the larger societal framework doesn't fall into decadence. That's the idea. Verse 30. Oh, by the way, verse 29 is about whores. I just again wanted to say that. Verse 30. (laughs) you shall keep my sabbaths reverence my sanctuary I am the Lord give no regard to mediums familiar spirits it's demon stuff don't seek after them to be defiled by them I am the Lord your God in the context here of raising daughters in a godly way we we find again the exhortation to keep the sabbath right the idea is that uh, you should prioritize as a dad incorporating spiritual things into the life of your family while at the same time keeping distance from the demonic or worldly influences. Verse 32, you shall rise before the gray-headed Larry. 
and honor the presence of an old man, Larry. Uh, And fear your God, I am the Lord. In much the same way that children are to honor their parents, uh, God's saying that society should have an esteem for its seniors. That we should appreciate their experiences. You know, it's sad. I mean, we live in what, what you can define as now the okay boomer generation that has a total disdain for the elderly. Th- that, that's an indicator of cultural rot, of problems. And the church, there should always be great respect, dignity shown, our seasoned siblings. I thought that was a good line. Verse 33. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. This is to oppress or treat violently. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you or treated as a native Israelite. You shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Here God is addressing the attitude that the Israelites were to have towards the stranger who came seeking to dwell among them. Based upon their experiences as foreigners dwelling in Egypt, they were to treat people much differently. In Egypt, they had been abused. But in Israel, the stranger was to be cared for. You shall not mistreat him. In Egypt, they had been segregated. But in Israel, the stranger was to be assimilated. To be treated as one born among you. Now there is no doubt that immigrants and refugees were to be treated with love and compassion in Israel. But it's equally true that the stranger, their ability to stay in the land, was predicated upon a few key things. One, you had to reject your former identity by becoming a Hebrew. If you were a guy, that meant circumcision. I'm going to become part of the people. Two, you had to reject your former religion and culture by fully assimilating into Hebrew society. You couldn't be a Gentile, remain like a Gentile, behave like a Gentile, and still live in the land of Israel. You had to embrace religious and social customs. And three, you had to obey all of the laws that govern the nation that you decided to join. We see this over and over and over again in Leviticus. The law is being applied also to the stranger. You're not given a pass. Like We should never forget and we live in kind of a very interesting time period where we're struggling and, 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 and trying to figure out as Americans, like, how do we do the immigration thing in this melting pot? But, but we, as the church, we shouldn't forget that over and over and over again in the New Testament, believers are encouraged to not neglect to show hospitality to the stranger. In Matthew 25, Jesus even goes so far as to equate the way that we treat the least of these with the way that we treat him. Verse 35, you shall do no injustice in judgment and measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, an honest in. Basically, business dealings were to be conducted above board, beyond reproach. You know, amazingly, the one thing that got Jesus the most riled up was who? The money changers that were ripping off the people. If you have a business, be fair, honest scales, trust the Lord. Concluding, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe all my statutes and my judgments and perform them, I am the Lord. Now we're running out of time. We're going to go a little long, so just hold tight. Were you able to pick up the undercurrent just below the surface of Leviticus 19? If you weren't, let, let me just quickly recap the themes that are covered in this chapter. Being holy, honoring parents, keeping the Sabbath, idolatry, compassion to the poor, being generous with our harvest, stealing, deceiving others, lying, swearing on God's name falsely, taking God's name in vain, paying employees, kindness towards the deaf and blind, showing no partiality in judgment, not gossiping, bearing false witness, hating your brother, loving your neighbor, not mixing those things that should remain pure, grace towards sexual sin, how to judge a tree and fruit, avoiding the occult, respecting the elderly, treating the stranger with dignity and kindness, conducting business honestly. The case can be made that the description of the holy life that we find in Leviticus 19 <laughs> is identical to the one established for the Christian in the New Testament. Like again and again and again, as you go through the New Testament, I was going through this chapter, I was like, I've heard this before. Like over and over again, all throughout, the, just consistently pointing back, going back. In fact, I'm convinced Leviticus 19, which I now call God's Sermon from the Tent, lays the foundation for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The parallels are radical. Think about it this way. How does chapter 19 begin? Be holy. Not do holiness, but be holy. How did Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? With a list of beatitudes. Not do attitudes, but be attitudes. One of the grand accusations levied at the Old Testament is how it presents God as possessing a heavy hand. But what's fascinating is how Jesus and the New Testament authors are constantly taking what we find in Leviticus 19, and what are they doing with it? Are they diluting it? No. They actually take it one step further. You shall love your neighbor. <laughs> Jesus says, you should love your enemies too. You shall not hate your brother. <laughs> you should do good to those who hate you. Pray for them. You shall not murder. Oh, don't even be angry. You shall not commit adultery. Oh man, lust? Well, that's a bigger thing. You shall leave the corner of your fields for those that are lacking. What would Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Sell everything and give it to the poor. Who's heavy-handed? Jesus. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, in the beginnings of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he says that he didn't come to contrast himself with the law. Nor did he come to do away with the law. Instead, Jesus says, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
The problem that Jesus had with the religious leaders was that they failed to actually understand what the law was all about. The law wasn't rules for them to obey, but a description of the very people God intended to make them into. And they missed that. You know, in the context of everything we've been discussing about God, taking this group of people and creating them into a separate and holy nation, it's not an accident that our chapter ends with Genesis language. This word, you shall observe. It's the same word we find in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Same word. Aside from this, and perform them, this word perform, it's also foundational to the creation narrative. Genesis 1, verse 11, as, a, as an example, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the the, the herb that yields seed, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, that yields fruit, that's the same word, perform, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so, and the, and the earth brought forth grass. The, the herb that yields seed, the tree that yields, again, performs fruit. And God saw that it was good. You ever seen a tree struggle to produce fruit? No. It doesn't. It's something that, that happens naturally, that yields. You never see a little grape on the vine just struggling to be a grape. <laughs> no, it just abides and it grows. You see, the idea that God is articulating at the end of this chapter is that the attitudes and the actions described in the chapter were something that he would yield in their lives as long as they tended to keep his word. You know, what a wonderful promise considering holiness is not something any man can manifest within himself. Again, you can't do holiness. You must be made holy. Which is what God's promising his people what he would accomplish in them. In the same way that God brought forth vegetation from the earth, he's promising that he would make them holy if they just rooted in his word. I'll close with this. One of the grand debates surrounding Leviticus is how much of it should we as New Testament Christians be doing? To this I'd simply say we're to do none of it but embody all of it. Something that only can happen embodying righteousness. It can only happen when Jesus dwells in our midst through the power of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus works out His grace in our lives through the transformative power of His Word. You can't do these things, but Jesus can make you in them, into them. My friend, grace is not the beginning of something. It ends in the revelation of someone. And his name is Jesus. So Father, we thank you for your word.